One of the hardest things about organising a party is choosing the invites. Uh, it's not so hard if it's one of those open house BYO everything kind of events. That's pretty simple. Whoever comes, they bring enough food and probably a bit too more, too much more than you need, and everything's fine. But if it's a sit-down meal at an expensive venue with limited seats, you've got to make a choice. And it can be really, really hard. I've been involved in organising three weddings so far, mine and my two daughters. When I say organising, um, uh, mainly Mandy, but um, you know, I was involved somewhere along the line. And one of the things that at least ran it past my desk was, who's coming? And it was a tough choice. You, you want to invite lots and lots of people. And in the end, you have to say no to some because there's not enough seats or there's not enough money or both. So we made the list, we sent out the invitations, and in the end we had to show a special favour to a select number of people. If you've received an invite to a wedding, then you'll know that you're special, because it's a privilege to attend a wedding party. And that's particularly the case if the person who is getting married is someone who is famous, like a princess or a, or a prince. Imagine you got an invitation to a royal wedding. There would be hundreds of thousands of people who would love to be there. And yet you've made it to the final list. It's an enormous privilege. You'd think, this is an extraordinary honour. I would do anything to possibly be there. Unless you were really unwell, or maybe it was the day of your own wedding, in which case you'd say, oh, tough choice. I might just go to my own one if that's okay. But another reason why you wouldn't go would be if you didn't like the royal family. Maybe you despised the king and you didn't want to support his rule. If that was the case, you might politely or perhaps even impolitely decline the invitation and boycott the event. That is what we will see here today in Matthew's Gospel. King Jesus has come in triumph to Jerusalem and the religious leaders around him continue to fight with him. They don't recognise him as king and they want him silenced. Jesus has just told a story about some tenants who kill the landlord's son and the religious rulers know that Jesus is talking against them. They were the murderous tenants. They were the ones who had rejected the son, the son of the landlord who in the story refers to Jesus. But now Jesus tells them another story about rejection. And this time it's the rejection of an invitation to a royal wedding. These religious leaders are about to be warned not to reject an invitation by the king. Verse 1 of chapter 22 of Matthew is where we pick up. Jesus also told them other parables. He said, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. We don't know much about it just yet. But we know it will be an extraordinary event, an event not to be missed at all. And so, verse 3a, when the banquet's ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited. He's got his list and he sends out couriers to say, here's your invitation, don't miss out. But believe it or not, they all refused to come. Everyone said no. Not one yes. Now you wonder why would they all refuse this invitation? Perhaps it's because they just don't realise how good it is. 
And if that is the case, the king decided to resend the invitations. It's really interesting. He resends the invitations with more information about how awesome the party is going to be. So, verse 4 it says, He sent other servants to tell them, The feast has been prepared, the bulls and fatted cattle have been killed, and everything's ready. Come to the banquet. Now, I'll be honest. If I sent out a whole lot of invitations to one of my kids' weddings and they all came back saying, I'm not going to go and say, but let me tell you what's on the menu. It's going to be really nice. Can I describe it to you? Please, please, please. I'd be like, huh. But no. Look at what the king does. The king shows grace. He shows them kindness. And his persistence shows us his grace. That's a beautiful picture here of ultimately of God's kindness, the king's kindness. And it's a reminder also of exactly what the party's like, how good the party is. I love that throughout the Bible, when it talks about heaven, it doesn't sort of talk about uh, in, an interminably long church service, as good as church services could be. Uh, it's talked about the party, the party, the wedding reception. You know what it's like when you, you've been to the wedding, you go to the reception and it's like you lose track of time and you're just there and you're eating and drinking and laughing and listening and playing and dancing and all those sorts of things and time gets away and you're just in that moment of joy. How does God describe heaven? It's like that. Why would you miss out? But despite their second invitation, they still reject him, verse 5. But the guests he had invited ignored them and went their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. They don't just reject him, they ignore him. It's not like, no, you can tell your king I'm not interested. It's like, yeah, whatever. Just throw it in the mail with all the catalogue, in the bin with all the catalogues you get in the mail. But some go a lot further than that, a lot further than that passive rejection. Verse 6, others seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. It's pretty extreme. Those people go so far as to abuse the king's couriers. How do you reckon the king's going to react this way, this time? Sometimes you see these parables, they'll come in threes. So they get the first invitation. Then you get the second invitation. And then the third invitation... The king comes running down there himself and begs them, please, 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 please come. But no, not this one. Verse 7, the king is furious. And he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and burn their town. He is angry. And I think rightly so. I think it's rightly so. Because if you were the king and they killed off your couriers because of your invitation, you would be livid. Friends, it is right for God to be angry at people who reject him. Some people can't get their heads around the fact that God will be angry at those who reject him. But God made us, handmade each of us, loves us dearly, has given us a creation so that we might enjoy it and more than anything, that we might go to the Lord and say, 
I follow your loving rule. You are so good and kind. But we read in the Bible that naturally we have all rejected him and his rule. And it's personal. We have said, no, Lord, we hate you. And now he is angry at us, and rightly so. Because the same king who has offered not one but two invitations is rightly angry with those who killed his couriers. God is righteous, and his anger is fully justified. But the party must go on. Verse 8 and 9. He said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honour. So now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. Everyone around there in that area is invited. Verse 10, so the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. Everyone else said no, but these guys have all said yes. But there's a problem with one particular guest. A surprising problem. Verse 11. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. This is one of the people who got the the standby round, the, the, the second chance wedding invitation. And this person has come on in and, well, basically he has ignored the dress code completely. Verse 12, we read that, Friend, the king said, How is it that you are here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. None at all. It's a bit hard to work out exactly what's happening here, but clearly what's happening is the guy doesn't take the invitation seriously. It's like he's turned up to this royal wedding looking like he's just mowing the lawn after a massive amount of mud. He doesn't respect the king. He doesn't respect the function. It's not so, it doesn't seem that it's like he's so poor, he doesn't have any nice clothes, he's got to come in the only clothes he's got. Because otherwise he'd say, Have mercy on me, these are the best clothes I've got. But instead he is silent, almost arrogantly it feels. And that is, it seems, it's because he doesn't respect the king and the occasion. This guest doesn't respect the king and the occasion. He just shrugs his shoulders and sort of effectively says, whatever, but it's not good enough. This is the king's son's wedding. It's a big deal. This guy, he wants to turn up and have the fancy food and drink, but he doesn't care at all for the king who's putting on the party. And so we have this quite extraordinary response, verse 13. The king said to his aides, Bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How do you react to seeing that? It does seem just a little bit over the top. I mean, if I was the king, I might say, listen, it's not appropriate, go out, you're not welcome. But it seems that what he has done is so severe and significant in the way that it has offended personally the king that the king basically throws him into hell. He throws him 
into where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. That's the way that hell is described in other parts of the Bible. But this guy wants all the benefits, but he ignores the king. He wants the kingdom of heaven, but he didn't want God. And related to that, it seems, is a deeper problem for Jesus explains, verse 14, that many are called, but few are chosen. Now remember, Jesus is talking here. Remember who he's talking to at this stage. He's talking to the religious leaders who have rejected him. They're the leaders who should know better. He is giving them this fairly kind of nuclear option. He's saying, listen... I want you to avoid making the mistakes of the people who rejected this invitation. I want you to realise how serious it is to reject the king. And I want you to see how serious it is to to want the benefits of heaven without worshipping the true God. Those religious leaders were called, but they show with their actions they're not chosen. And their continual rejection proves that point. They've rejected the invitation of the king and they're about to arrest his son, verse 15, because the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They reject Jesus and they want to get rid of him. So they don't stop there, they team up with some unusual allies, verse 16a. They send some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet with him. These Jews and Herodian leaders come together. They come together to attack Jesus again. Real unlikely allies, but they come together with this one aim. And they start by sort of this sickeningly sweet address of Jesus. They say, teacher, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You're impartial and don't play favourites. They're buttering him up. And then they try to trap him, verse 17. So tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It is a really controversial question. It's a question that will very easily divide people. Because if you pay taxes to Caesar, if you're a Jewish person and you pay taxes to Caesar, then in a way you're saying, hey, I'm okay with our promised land being occupied by these Romans who are ruling us and they're doing it so aggressively and so I'm going to support them by paying money. But on the other hand, if you say, don't pay taxes, then you, especially if you're a Jewish leader, you are thumbing your nose at the rulers, the Romans of all people, and you are on a line for a hiding. You'll be crucified. So you can sort of see that it's a little bit of a tricky question and they think, let's throw this at Jesus and see if we can nail him one way or another. How does Jesus react? Well, he knows what's happening. He knows their evil motives. He says, you hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? It's a good question. We know why they're trying to trap him so they can get rid of him. But with this, he then comes and he says, okay, verse 19, show me the coin that's used for this tax that's paid. And then when they handed him a Roman coin, he said, whose picture and title are stamped on it, hey? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus is going to reply with a question. 
And their question comes back saying, it's Caesar's head on it. What's Jesus going to do? Well, famously, he says, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. In just a few words, Jesus makes it clear how you can navigate this delicate relationship between church and state. They've got to honour their earthly rulers and also honour God. Honour the rulers, honour God. It's possible to do both. And it's this that, in fact, is fleshed out in the teaching in the rest of the New Testament, such as Romans 13, where we read in verse 1 that everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. God is the ultimate ruler, and he rules through earthly rulers like Caesar. It's not too hard, ultimately. And Jesus gives them this really clever answer. And they know how clever it is. Because verse 22, his reply amazed them. It's like, whoa. And they went away. Their trap didn't work. But that won't stop religious leaders trying hard to bring him down. And so we then read in verse 23 that that same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees. They were religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. Uh, this particular group of religious leaders want to have a go at discrediting Jesus. And their big thing is they reject life after death. They don't, want life, they don't think life after death happens. They think that the moment that you stop breathing, that is the end of existence for you completely. Interesting perspective from religious people, isn't it? But they do have that. And to prove that point, they want to show how silly it is to think that there's life after death. And they're going to line Jesus up and give an example of how silly it is in their eyes to believe in life after death. And they present a paradox. 23b, they pose this question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. They quote from the Old Testament where it talks about what to do when a married couple has no kids. But sadly, the husband dies and the wife is left without any kids. And the question is, what are you going to do to carry on the name of the, of the, the man? If this seems quite familiar to you, it's because a few weeks ago, Graham Errington preached on the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel. And if you haven't heard it yet, go and listen to it. it, it he spends an entire sermon just on this little bit that I'm going to brush over. But right here, you can see that what they're trying to do is to make Jesus' belief in eternal life look stupid. So they, they say this example. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died with their children. So his brother, number one, married the widow. But the second brother also died. And then the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. And last of all, the woman also died. So tell us... Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. It's like he's saying, Jesus, this whole thing of life after death, it's just silly. And so are you. Well, Jesus' response is pretty simple. He says, you don't know the Bible very well, do you? You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Because he then tells them that verse 30, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. He's saying, listen, you assume that marriage is going to continue as life after death in the same way that 
Life is going to continue with life after death, but you got it wrong. Marriage doesn't continue after death, which is what Jesus says there. As Graham taught in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, we're all basically single in heaven. And the truth solves the Sadducees' paradox. Jesus doesn't look stupid. They do. But he doesn't stop there. He brings them back to the Bible. These these Sadducees, they didn't really like all of the Old Testament. They particularly liked the first five books. So Jesus, who's super clever, he says, I'm actually going to get you back to one of the bits from the first five books of the Bible that you, you claim to know. Have a look at this. He says in verse 31, but now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead, haven't you ever read about this in the Scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And so he is the God of the living, not the dead. In other words, God is speaking about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as though they're still alive, long after they've died. And Jesus is saying, if God is speaking about them after they've died as though they're alive, clearly God thinks that there's such a thing as life after death. And all of this makes the Sadducees look pretty stupid. And it's not just a few of them there They're, in fact, in front of a whole lot of people. Verse 33, when the crowds heard Jesus, they were astounded at his teaching. (laughs) One after other, all of these so-called religious smart people come on in and they look as religious stupid people, one after the other in front of Jesus as they're trying to nail him. And you think, this is the time, boys, to put your bat under your arm and just retire, just walk off the field. But they don't. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, who they don't really like, they thought it was pretty cool, they then met together to question him again. And one of them, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Remember what see, see what the Bible says they're doing here? They're not like turning up for a Bible study saying, saying, Oh, I'd love to know more of the Bible. They're trying to trap him. And so they go in with this question. I reckon they've got together and they said, I reckon we've got one good question left. What are we going to do? Your choice? No, no, no. Oh, that's the one. And this is the one. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, what's controversial about that? It's kind of like saying, which song do you like that we sing the most at church? You know? Or even some people will sometimes say, you know, what's your favourite book of the Bible? You know... That's sort of what they're doing here with Jesus. Isn't that okay? But I think what they're doing with Jesus is something more than that. They're actually wanting Jesus to show favouritism to the Bible. Favouritism in certain bits. It's a little bit like asking a parent which child they love the most. Now, one of the children, they're going to feel pretty happy at the answer. The rest of the family, not so happy the rest of the extended family, that's not going to go down so well. It will be a very awkward Christmas day the next time you get together. Because when you show love for one over the other, then you show that you don't really love the others as much. That's what they want to do. If we can get Jesus to say just one favourite verse, it'll show that he doesn't really like the rest of the Bible and, well, we've got him. But instead, Jesus says this, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbour as yourself. 
The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. It's a, it's a famous answer from Jesus, isn't it? And he basically says, well, the, most, the, the greatest of all is to love God, which is basically the whole of the Bible. And what's more, when you do that, then, well, you'll also be loving others, which is also the whole of the Bible. He, he gets out of this sort of show me the favoritism sort of thing. And he very cleverly takes all ten commandments and summarises them in two, well, basically one. See, the first four of the ten commandments are all about loving God, and he says, well, he summarises those. And the last six are about loving your neighbour, and he summarises them all in the second one. And kind of all together he says, well, there's actually two, and they're one, and here he goes. He's basically showing us that when we love God, we'll love one another. They're connected. You love God, you love each other. That's the motivation for us to love each other. And we don't get it the other way around. We don't love each other so that God will love us. We love God. And in doing so, we love one another. But having given that clever answer, Jesus turns around and interrogates the religious rulers. Verse 41 and 42. Uh, he says, Then, surrounded by the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Jesus is going to ask the question now. And he wants them to talk about the identity of the Messiah. He wants them to think about who the coming of King of Israel will be like. So that they can then see how Jesus ticks every box. How do these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, how do they respond to Jesus' question? They say in verse 42b, He's the son of David. Is that the right answer? Well, yeah, actually it is. It's the right answer. But, and the but is what we see in verses 30, 43 to 45. Jesus responded, Then, why does David, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit in Psalm 110, why does he call the Messiah my Lord? For David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honour at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. And since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? What Jesus is doing here very cleverly and kindly, I think, is he's trying to help these religious leaders realise they might have missed the big picture about the leader that God's sending to Israel. Because these guys... They think the Messiah is merely just another human king. I mean, yes, he is another human king, but not merely. Now, this makes sense because God said to King David in 2 Samuel 7, when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I'll raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I'll make his kingdom strong. He's the one I'll build a house, he'll build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever they, they, they kind of got it right but there's more to the Messiah than just another earthly ruler of Israel and Jesus makes this point by quoting from this psalm, Psalm 110 it's a psalm of David and in this psalm King David speaks to the true Messiah and addresses him as my Lord 
And if that's the case, a thousand years or so before Jesus walked on earth, if at that point David is talking to the true Messiah, he can't just be simply an earthly king. What we see here is that their view of the Messiah was too small. And I think this is the reason why they have rejected Jesus. They've said this is what the Messiah needs to be like. And Jesus comes along and he's kind of a bit more like that. And he's certainly not like that. They've rejected him because they've not recognised that the Messiah is far more than just the son of David. Because the Messiah is the son of God. And as we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, he's also the suffering servant, the servant of Israel. There's more to Jesus than these religious rulers can see. And so Jesus wants to say, listen, you've got to have a bigger mind to what the leader is like that God's sending. And when you have that bigger mind, you'll realise that I'm the man. How kind of Jesus to try and and encourage them to recognise who he really is. But they won't do it. Their hearts are hard. And the final verse says, No one could answer him, and after that no one dared to ask him any more questions. It raises the question, who do you think Jesus is? They're all going tit for tat, trying to deliver him all of these deliveries to to try and knock him down. And in the end, Jesus is saying, it's all about my identity. And he throws that back to us today. Who do you think Jesus is? Is he just a religious ruler who inspired a generation with kindness and wisdom? Or is he truly the son of God? The suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If only those religious leaders had recognised Jesus for who he really was. The eternal Son of God, the King of Heaven, the Servant of Israel. Because then if they had really recognised that, they would have accepted the greatest invitation of all. And they would have been at the greatest party of all. But instead they rejected Jesus And so they're in hell. The question for us all is, who do you think Jesus is? What will you do with your invitation to the king's banquet? What will you do do with your invitation to join Jesus in his heavenly kingdom?